Colleagues, uh, I welcome you uh, this new year to Voices of the Sacred Feminine, and uh, we are in our uh, 13th year here on the air at Blog Talk, and uh, I am your host, uh, Karen Tate, and uh, I'm so happy to have with me uh, the guests Lynn Pipnett and Clive Prince. Uh, they are famous for their television appearances, their historical detective work, uh, their books uh, like The Templar Revelation and The Turin Shroud. Uh, and they're calling in at a uh, special time today uh, from the UK to discuss their new book, uh, When God Had a Wife, uh, The Fall and Rise of the Sacred Feminine in the Judeo-Christian Tradition. Uh, we're going to be discussing uh, the mass of evidence uh, for the veneration of goddess among ancient Israelites and later Jews and Samaritans and reveal the startling truth about how it carried through into the mission of Christ. Uh, they'll share how the sacred feminine was suppressed, first in Judaism, then in Christianity, but how it refused to stay down from long ago into the present day. And we'll also talk about how their work was a major inspiration uh, for the Da Vinci Code. And we're going to get into that in just a sec, uh, but just a little bit of housekeeping first. I want to give a shout-out uh, to Diva Haley, uh, and you were listening to her cut, Narayana, uh, which started the show, uh, The Ancient Mother Melody. And um, I'll be playing that whole cut at the very end of the show for those of you who really uh, appreciate her music and particularly that song. Also, too, at the end of the interview, uh, I have something special for you that one of my listeners sent in. Uh, it's called The Only New Year's Resolution That You'll Ever Need to Make. So uh, it's, it's nice. Uh, I think you'll want to hear that. So stay with us through the end of the show. And uh, just uh, one other comment. Uh, if you heard uh, my recent um, uh, airing here on Voices of the Sacred Feminine last week uh, called Escaping the Wasteland. Uh, just an interesting follow-up uh, to that um, topic uh, that I discussed with you. Um, the Prime Minister in Finland actually has come forward saying that uh, she promotes a four-day work week and a six-hour day. Now, uh, to me, that's a great sign that uh, we are moving in the right direction so that uh, more of us can have a more balanced life and possibly escape that wasteland that uh, Sharon Blackie talks about and um, uh, I discussed at length with you last week. All right. Um, well, uh, let's uh, go ahead and uh, get on with uh, today's show. And uh, I'm going to tell you a little bit more about uh, my two guests, uh, just if by chance uh, this is the first time uh, you've heard of them. Uh, they've, uh, you know, they've worked together, uh, Lynn Pitnett and Clive Prince, uh, they've worked together on nonfiction books about religion and historical mysteries for over 25 years. Their most influential book, which was uh, so much fun to read, it was a favorite of mine, it's all dog-eared and the pages are falling out, uh, is called The Templar Revelation, and um, I read that right after Holy Blood, Holy Grail, uh, which was out there, and uh, Holy Blood, Holy Grail was a really hard read, a great book, but I think The Templar Revelations uh, by Lynn and Clive was even better. Uh, that came out in 97, uh, and they, they revised it in 2007, and uh, it still stands the test of time. And it was a major inspiration for the Da Vinci Code, uh, where they actually had cameos uh, in the movie. They've also brought uh, many other topics to the public's awareness, uh, such as uh, Da Vinci, uh, the, the Da Vinci's role in uh, faking the Shroud of Turin, and they talk about that 
in their book, uh, Turin Shroud, How Leonardo da Vinci Fooled History. And um, they also have another book out uh, about the startling truth about the origins of Christianity and the masks of Christ. Um, a major theme of their work has always uh, been the suppression but persistence of the sacred feminine, which we talk about a lot here on the show and have for years. And now uh, they present their most explosive evidence for the lost goddess in both Judaism and Christianity in their latest book, When God Had a Wife. So welcome, guys. Uh, Welcome to Voices of the Sacred Feminine. Thank you very much, Karen, for having us on. Yes, hello, Karen. Great. Uh, well, this is a you know this is a great uh, topic, uh, and I really love it. And you know, it, it always amazes me, um, you know, that so many people still don't know God had a wife, and uh, still don't know uh, where the early uh, you know Jewish worship was, what they were doing, cakes for the Queen of Heaven, and all of that stuff. Uh, but but for both of you, um, uh, you know, where did this inquiry start? Um, you know, what uh, possessed you to write this particular book? Because, you know, as we know, a book is a is a huge commitment. Well, essentially, um, some of the other books that we've written over the last twenty five years, which you mentioned in your lovely intro, um, kind of forced us to write this book. Um, because, as you said, you know, we'd written the Templar Revelation, uh, which was largely about Mary Magdalene, and um, we'd written the Mass of Christ, and I personally, on my own, had written a book about Mary Magdalene, Um, and we we felt, in a way, that these books deserved what might be called a prequel. We had to go right back before Christianity. We had to go right back to, to the Israelite religion, and see exactly where the roots of, if you like, not only the the goddess, but the roots of the suppression of the goddess came from. Um, and this kind of had had obsessed us for quite some time, but we hadn't the 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 time or the resources to to get round to writing this book. Um, and finally, we did, and it was a kind of explosion of interest in us. Um, and you know, we, we were writing things together and, and kind of looking at each other and going what what you know I mean we haven't really been like that for a long time um, and um, it, it, it we hope that people are are as excited by this book as we were in writing it basically okay okay and um, and I hope uh, I, you know I, I hope this uh, uh, you know, opens lots of eyes out there because that can only, you know, once people get over the shock, I think it sort of then begins to build common ground, uh, you know, to bring more people together because they see we actually have uh, more in common once, you know, uh, there's some transparency and the truth is revealed. So um, why do you think uh, both uh, in the Jewish faith and in Christianity um, the sacred feminine was, um, you know, just, uh, I guess, as you say, airbrushed out of history, airbrushed out of their religions? Uh, It's a really interesting question uh, because what might appear the simple answer um, may not be the right one. The kind of, in a way, the glib answer is to say, well, both those religions are very patriarchal, so the sacred feminine was removed because uh, because the religions were run by men. But of course, in the in the ancient world, most of the ancient cultures, you know, if you think of the Romans and the Greeks, were also very patriarchal. Um, but they still had a place for goddesses. They still acknowledged um, uh, the significance of the sacred feminine. So what appears to be the simple answer isn't, um, or, or the obvious answer today, probably isn't the right one. I mean, we think, uh, and it's perhaps not as easy to answer as, um, as you might think. Our um, idea is that Certainly where the the, the Jewish faith was concerned, it came about really through a a unique set of historical accidents. Because, you know, the the starting point of the book, which I'm sure most of your your listeners will realise, is that the religion of the ancient Israelites um, did have a goddess in people. 
Um, the ancient Israelites were talking about the time of Moses, I mean, all the way through the time of Solomon. All those big names um, in the, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. Um, the religion of that time was, they, they were not monotheistic. Um, they were what's known as monolaters. This is um, a form of worship where you, you focus all your worship on one particular deity, um, but you acknowledge the existence of others, which is not, it's not the same as monotheism. And often you know, they, the, the, the ancient Israelites focus their worship on the god Yahweh, who they had this kind of special relationship with, uh, but they acknowledged and accepted, just as was standard in the ancient world, that every god would be paired with a goddess. Um, so Yahweh was. And then over a course of time, um, she was gradually removed. And this, this happens quite late. This is after the exile in Babylon, where it's about couple of generations after that when the, the Judaic religion was sort of codified and set, this is when they developed the canon of uh, sacred texts that became the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament um, and it's during that process that they not only you know, codified the doctrines of the religion but they also kind of rewrote their history to make it appear that that's the way they'd always been. And really, I think it's um, it was a consequence of a whole series of bad things happening to um, the the people of Judah, um, which ended with the um, uh, exile in Babylon. And the logic, their, their own religious logic, forced them more and more to focus on Yahweh alone, because their, their logic being. We've done this deal that Yahweh will protect us and make us a great nation if in return for our worship. Well, we're being invaded. Terrible things are happening to us. We've been sent off into exile. It can't be Yahweh's fault because he's God. It must be our fault for not, um, for not worshipping him hard enough. So let's exclude all the other deities. Let's focus more and more on him. And then still bad things happen to them. So in, and at that point, they're still pairing him with, with Asherah, his consort, his wife, and eventually there comes a point where they say, we've even got to get rid of her. Um, we've just got to focus just on this male god alone. And of course, as soon as you've got to that point, um, all kinds of consequences follow from that. So, really, so it's quite a, a long and rambling answer to your question, which, um, but that, that's really, I think it was a kind of unique set of historical accidents uh, that were then carried through into Christianity. Well, um, well, in my comments to that are, are a few, and and look, and you know, I uh, I don't, uh, it, you know, I don't claim to be an authority here. I am happy, to, you know, if my guests, you know, tell me, well, I don't agree or I'm wrong. to, um, you know, establishing that God had a wife, and, and you finally said it toward the end, um, you know, her name uh, was Asherah. Um, I, you know, am I right to sort of concisely say that uh, the Israelites were also worshiping the Canaanite, uh, you know, gods and goddesses, um, and there was this period of time where, um, you know, you had that overlap, um, and, and the Canaanites and the Israelites were kind of coexisting, um, worshiping mutual gods. Um, it, 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 would that be correct to say? Uh, yes. Um, I mean, the, the relationship between the Israelites and the Canaanites is another controversial area, whether all of the 12 tribes um, actually came, came from Egypt into the Promised Land or whether some of them were, were already there. Um, but yes, certainly at the beginning, they were worshipping the same gods that the Canaanites, or many of the same gods that the Canaanites did. Because in particular, their, their big god, their creator god, who was El. And what's interesting is that you get this big shift that in 
the book of Genesis, first of the Old Testament, um, God there is El, which you know, is in common with the Canaanite. And then there comes a point, and it's when Moses has his um, experience with the, the burning bush, that God's name changes and becomes Yahweh. And that's normally thought of today as just God taking another name. But the evidence is very strong that this represented a, a shift from El as the greater God through to one of the lesser gods, Yahweh, who was given this special um, uh, deal, the special covenant with the people of Israel. Um, and thereafter, God is pretty... It is nearly always referred to as Yahweh, still occasionally, but um, that's only when talking about him as creator. When you're talking about the God of the Israelites, it's always very much Yahweh. So, um, but yes, there is this interplay between, you know, the start of sharing gods with um, the Canaanites, but not Yahweh. Yahweh is unique. Yahweh is kind of special to the Israelites. But they, El, well, El, sorry. No, go right ahead, Lam. What were you going to say? Oh, um, I was going to say both, you know, the, the, the ancient Israelite male god had a consort, um, and the consort was Asherah, and she was much beloved by uh, the people, I mean, the, the common people, the countryside people, um, who set up um, pillars. They, they set up trees to her, of wooden pillars, and that's how they worshipped her. And it was an extraordinary love for the goddess that persisted, I mean, over all sorts of attempts to completely eradicate it. Um, and when, when she was airbrushed, when the sacred feminine was airbrushed out of their religions, of course, it had a dramatic and devastating effect on the respect or lack of it that in general, men, or certainly elite men, um, had for ordinary women. Because if you no longer have right. a female, if you no longer have a female deity or a great female uh, archetype embedded in your culture and in your religion and in your emotion, um, you can do anything you like. Because, you know, women are not divine anymore. Right, right, and um, and 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 I and that's and I want to go there next, but just one last point um, I want to uh, touch on for for perhaps those who are hearing this for the first time. Um, how far back can we go, or what can we point to as proof for the naysayers who want to say, um, you know, God didn't have a wife? This is just Oh, uh, feminist propaganda or something. Uh, the evidence is is overwhelming, uh, and it has been growing for the last fifty, even a hundred years. Um, so, what started as a kind of speculation has now received lots and lots of evidence for it. What, one of the reasons for us wanting to write the book was to kind of make people aware of actually how much evidence there is. Um, there is uh, there was the evidence of archaeological uh, evidence of inscriptions. There are actual inscriptions from the time that have been found which are to, uh, to Yahweh and his Asherah. Um, there are figurines that have been identified as, um, as being of Asherah, and literally thousands of them, uh, from a, a particular period in Israelite history, which is during the period of the, of the kingdom. Yeah. Um, there is evidence from you start off reading between the lines of the text of the of the Old Testament, um, because the, 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 this word Asherah for a long time it, it's it's there it, it, it's mentioned in, in in the Bible, but for a, a long long time people didn't know what the word actually meant, except it was something it was a feminine noun and it was to do with something that the Israelites worshipped in the form of a tree. And it was only when archaeologists archeology, began to excavate um, Canaanite uh, places, which is probably back in the nine, 1920s, um, and discovered that the um, that Asherah was this Canaanite goddess, that suddenly it all fell into place. Um, 
but you know, as I say, since then there's been lots of evidence, in, you know, archaeological evidence, textual evidence, um, evidence of of the symbolism, and the, the case now is really, um, you know, impossible to argue with. Um, and the strange thing is, you know, even within the evidence of the Old Testament itself, it at least um, tells you that they acknowledge the existence of other gods besides Yahweh. You know, um, so, you know, the case is now pretty incontrovertible, um, even though so many right, people good. are completely aware of it. So, Lynn, uh, let me ask you, let's talk a little bit more about um, uh, the women who were baking cakes for the Queen of Heaven. Um, and, and as you said, uh, you know, as the goddess disappears, the status of uh, women's roles uh, diminishes. Uh, did, the, did the women give up the goddess easily? Um, do we know? Uh, is there any documentation, uh, you know, about that? I mean, was it something that they, they, did they phase her out over a long period of time, or was it relatively quickly? And um, can we see perhaps when the roles of women or how the roles of women started to diminish? The whole history of the sacred feminine in Judaism, and for that matter, in later Christianity, is very complicated and operated over the, you know, over the whole history of those faiths, and indeed the people involved. Um, and you have many attempts to mutate the goddess, if you like, until she's nothing, you know. Um, and as you say, that there are. Um, one of the rites of Asherah, the, the followers of Asherah, was to, to, was to bake little cakes as, as offerings to her, and presumably to be eaten as well in her honour. Um, um, and that this is what the ordinary people did. But there were, there were um, priestesses um, who were of, obviously of the Asherah religion. Um, and in fact, um, Asherah was worshipped... This is, this is an astonishing fact... We didn't make this up. This is a fact. Asherah was worshipped alongside Yahweh in Solomon's temple for about 70% of the time that it stood. So she was an official religion, uh, very official. And when she wasn't, when she went through periods of being out of favor because, the, for example, um, some of the uh, more patriarchal uh, prophets were on the rampage, you know, they didn't want anything to do with um, with the goddess, um, then it would go underground because the ordinary people couldn't bear to lose their goddess. Um, and over the centuries, um, she took different forms. She was worshipped and revered in different forms. She pops up as um, you know, as, as Lady Folly, Lady Wisdom. She pops up as the Shekinah, um, you know, um, she, which is like God's. Um, Almost like God's playmate, God's feminine playmate, God's challenger in a sense, God's companion. Um, the, the, the feminine takes different forms, and sometimes it's very hard for worshippers to know that, that that particular form is feminine, and that is part of the, the sacred feminine tradition. I mean, you get that in Christianity, um, you know, because uh, Christians believe in a trinity of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and they never think about that. But actually, the Holy Spirit um, is basically feminine. So, um, although, of course, it would be much more healthy as tr Trinity's go if it was the ancient Egyptian one of father, mother, and child, but, you know, part of everything. Right. Well, and, and also, uh, you know, you find in the holy books that uh, it, you'll have, like, El Shaddai, who I believe um, was either a neutral gender or a female gender until I think they made it male. Uh, you have these instances where they talk about God um, having a female attributes or life-giving um, abilities. You know, it's as if they uh, were writing about a, uh, the God as feminine, but then they didn't want her to be feminine, so they just slapped a male pronoun on it but kept 
you know, the, the female abilities uh, and attributes there. Uh, almost like Zeus, you know, who births, uh, births Athena from his head. You know, you have this patriarchy who wants to sort of deny the role of the female in procreation and grab it for themselves. Well, yes, I mean, it, 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 the division of the deities between male and female, you know, to gods and goddesses does seem, uh, you know, if you look at most ancient mythologies, that is seemed to be the way that they thought um, about their deities, um, as kind of you know, reflecting in their everyday lives. Um, but the evidence is that in their very origins, um, the concept of just you know one one great divine power that you then deal with by splitting it up into uh, different aspects and different attributes. And normally the very first division is between you know, a male force, a male, male power, and a female uh, force and, and power, looking after those respective parts of human lives. So, you know, with this, um, it, you know, changing the uh, changing the gender of a deity by changing the um, you know, the, 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 the noun, we're from a male to a feminine noun. A lot of this comes back to, you know, it depends what you mean by a god and what you mean by a goddess. And I think it, it means different things on, in, a, in a way on different levels of society. You know, for the, the right. ordinary folk, it was much easier to deal with, um, you know, a specific male and a specific female. Um, for those that more kind of theologically inclined and more more mystical, would see things differently, um, and of course, in, in in modern thinking, you know, the 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 the, um, uh, the, the way things are happening now is more and more to give so female attributes to Jesus, or you know, in the Jewish religion, to start to give female attributes um, to the Jewish God. So it's you know trying to sort of bring the sacred feminine back in that way. Okay. Um, well, we're going to take a quick break, uh, but when I come back, uh, I want to talk a little bit about uh, Simon Magnus and the Sacred Feminine and Jesus' movement uh, and kind of get into uh, where liberal synagogues might be today uh, with regard to the Sacred Feminine. Uh, but first, um, for listeners, here's a clip from uh, Serena Roney Dougal in uh, Joe Carson's film, uh, Dancing with Gaia. Let me tell you about Joe Carson's film, Dancing with Gaia an exploration of earth-based spirituality shot at sacred sites around the world. This is from Janina Renee, author of Playful Magic and By Candlelight. Dancing with Gaia is a magical, transformative film. Just watching it can alter your perception of the physical body and the energy field of the goddess Earth. Next time you are taking a walk or simply gazing across the landscape, you might find yourself affecting mystical fusion with the local earth forms or making deep contact with the spirits of place. If you want to engage deeper with the consciousness of the earth, there are a number of detailed but simple how-tos. What's more, seeing the exquisite works of these Gaia-inspired artists could energize you to start working on some of your own spiritually expressive projects. The DVD was shot in some of the most powerfully sacred sites in the Western world. It comes packaged with a 45-page color booklet, which goes even deeper into the ideas and techniques in the film. The package is just $20, and you can get it from dancingwithgaia.com. Dancing with Gaia is available only at dancingwithgaia.com. 
All right, so um, we're back uh, with uh, Lynn Pipnett and Clive Prince. We're talking about their new book, uh, When God Had a Wife. And um, I believe in the book you talk about Simon Magnus, and he had a lover by the name of Helen. Uh, could you fill us in on, uh, on Simon and Helen and why they're important to this topic? Well, Simon Magus was a Samaritan who... Um, was we call him in in one of our books the bad Samaritan, um, because he was apart from Judas Iscariot, the most hated man in the whole of the story of Christianity, um, because according to the New Testament, he tried to buy the Holy Spirit from Saint Peter. He was um, a terrible man. You have to read between the lines there, but actually from non-biblical sources, we know what form his, um, his strange behavior, his colorful behavior took. Um, apparently he was a sex magician. Uh, he um, believed that there were many gods and he believed that his beloved Helen, who um, was apparently, a, had been a prostitute, um, was um, the feminine part of God, if you like. Although it's a bit more complicated than that, but he believed that she, through several uh, incarnations, she had been demeaned and degraded until she could be degraded no more. And that he, as the male part of God, um, his job was to go and to save her, uh, by, literally by um, buying her out of the brothel, um, but also by um, elevating her to her role as the representative, the embodiment of the sacred feminine um, and they roved around um, uh, the countryside um, just like Jesus and his movement um, and they uh, exercised demons they did healings and Simon preached and in some places he was worshipped as a god and presumably Helen his beloved Helen was also worshipped as a goddess although we don't know that much about that in fact, all we know about them, really, was what we know from letters of very early churchmen who obviously hated them, loathed them. So basically, we can't trust what is said about them 100% because it's written by their enemies. But it does seem that they were very colorful. They practiced a form of sex magic. Uh, they were promiscuous. They believed that was the perfect love, as they described it. Um, and they were astonishing and that he was a very intelligent man um, whose reconstruction of early Judaism um, was absolutely spot on as far as we can see um, because he believed that it did have goddesses and that the time was right to restore the goddess in the form of his beloved Helen. Interesting. Um, well, that seems like a good segue for, um, you know, did the sacred feminine manifest in, in Jesus' movement? Um, yes, very much so. Um, and this is, this is where we came in with the Temple Revelation back in 1997, um, where from looking at uh, Jesus, and particularly his, the role of women in his movement, and particularly, of course, Mary Magdalene, um, we came to the conclusion then that Jesus was trying to bring the sacred feminine into um, the Jewish religion of his day. But we kind of had to stop, stop it there because, you know, like, where did he um, get that reverence for the sacred feminine from? Um, at the time, uh, we, we assumed that it was um, because of certain Egyptian elements in what uh, what he did, um, that he had actually sort of got these ideas from um, the, the Egyptian religion. But it's as we look more and more, you know, in that kind of 20 years, 20 plus years since then, we've got to know more and more about the origins of the, the Israelite religion, we realize he was actually, you know, picking it up from the fact that that's what the original religion was like. He was trying to restore that to his... Uh, he was trying to restore the religion to what it had been. He wasn't trying to add something completely new to it. Um, and, and it's one of the things that Simon Magus um, and Helen have always been in this, in, in a way, the key to understanding it. Because 
it, it has been suggested here by others, by you know, by scholars that um, what Simon Magus and Helen were trying to do was to restore the sacred feminine to, um, uh, well, particularly at that point in, in Samaria, rather than um, you know, to the to the tribe of Judah. Um, and that's when we saw, well, if that's what Simon Magus and Helen were trying to do, that's what Jesus was trying to do. They come from the same. Um, uh, they're coming from the same place, from the same movement, which also explains the, the this immense hostility that the early Christian church had to Simon Magus and why they had to make him into this kind of demon figure, um, because they were, they were terrified of Simon Magus and they were terrified of him because he was so much like Jesus. And of course they were building a religion which is all about the absolute uniqueness of Jesus Christ and they couldn't admit there was somebody else that was like him. Um, so they went through this whole process of, um, okay, saying yes, Simon Magus could do the same things as Jesus could apparently, but he did it because he was in league with demons, whereas Jesus was doing it through the Holy Spirit because he's the <laughs> Son of God. Um, so, and, and also, and another big consequence of that is that they had to remove the person who was uh, the equivalent of Simon Magus's Helen from the Jesus story. Well, and, and I, I can't recommend uh, Templar Revelations enough. Uh, I mean, I, I, I read it back in the 90s, and there's still some things that still stick with me and pop out. And one of them was, and, and, and like I said, feel free to connect, uh, correct me if I'm remembering wrong, but I believe um, that you put forth in that book that you thought uh, Jesus and Mary Magdalene might have actually been uh, practicing uh, uh, Osiris and Isis mysteries, I think particularly uh, with raising Lazarus from the dead. Uh, and this all sort of ties into what you were saying uh, with their with their Egyptian connection, and you know maybe also um, you know parallel to uh, Simon uh, Magnus and Helen, right? Uh, uh, yes, absolutely. Because it, although in um, say in Temple Revelation we did take it back to the Isis and Osiris mysteries. Um, and we might appear to be changing our mind now by saying, no, actually, they were trying to restore the original Israelite religion. Um, in fact, it's effectively the same thing, because we also argue in When God Had a Wife, uh, or put forward a lot of the evidence, that um, the Yahweh part of the religion that was brought into the Canaanites from these people that came in from, from Egypt um, was actually, you know, uh, part of the Egyptian religion, um, specifically the religion of Heliopolis, which is you know, the religion that has within it Isis and Osiris. Um, and so uh, our take on this is that um, at the time of Jesus and Simon Amagus, who were contemporaries, uh, that people were aware of this. Particularly when um, you know there, there was a huge kind of exchange of ideas at that point in Alexandria in Egypt, and there was a lot of uh, religions kind of comparing their ideas um, and you know exchanging ideas and seeing what they had in had in common. But the roots of the religion were recovered. The fact it did go back to Egypt, and you had um, the Isis and Osiris figures. Um, and again, all of this comes about from comparing what people have said and discovered about Simon Magus and comparing what Jesus and Mary Magdalene were doing. Um, and you begin to see that they're actually part, basically on the same team. Um, certainly, um, oh. Mary Magdalene. Certainly, Mary Magdalene was uh, a, a priestess. And people always say, oh, yeah, really? Well, tell us, you know, give us an example of her priestessing. And there is one amazing example in the New Testament right there in front of everybody's eyes. And you have, in order to understand it, you have to realize what Christ means, the word Christ. And as you know, it means the anointed one, just simply that, the anointed one. Um, and though we know where Jesus' baptism is, is, is in, in the New Testament, where is the anointing? Well, it's there, but in a very garbled form. It is the woman with the jar of 
perfume. Yeah, it's a woman who performs the ritual of christening, of turning Jesus into the Christ. She anoints him. She makes him the anointed one. And although the woman isn't named, it's very clear from the context that it's Mary Magdalene. Um, and it's a very, very strange uh, episode because clearly Jesus recognizes that this is a sacred rite. He's, uh, the, but the men, the famous male disciples, have no idea what is going on. Um, it's quite typical, actually, that they really don't know what he's about. Um, and um, they think they're being very clever, that they're sort of sucking up to teacher, because they say, you know, this, this ointment that she's using, this perfume, is incredibly expensive. What, you, know, why, why, you know, why didn't she sell it and, and give the money to the poor? They obviously think this is going to go down really well with Jesus, but it doesn't. First of all, he says, you know, you'll always have the poor with you. You've only got me for a short time. But then he says, she, she's done what she could. She has, she has anointed me for the burying. She basically, although he didn't say it in so many words, he is acknowledging that she has marked him out ritually for his fate and destiny. It's a woman who did it. And Jesus says, again, in my words, but he says, wherever the gospel is preached, this woman will be celebrated for what she did today. And isn't it strange, not really, given the circumstances, but, but isn't it odd that... Not only is she not celebrated for it, but her name isn't known. I mean, it, it's total, in a, well, it's, it's blatant historical sexism, but it's a major, major thing. She is, she's the person who anointed him. She was a priestess because at the moment of the anointing, she had to have authority to do it, authority over him. So for, certainly for that moment, and possibly for many more moments, she was his priestess. Well, and when what it reminds me of, you know, hearkening again back to the Egyptian, uh, you think of the goddess Isis, whose symbol is the throne, and it was by virtue of Isis that the pharaohs, uh, the pharaohs got the right to rule. So it's really kind of just a throwback to that, in a way, uh, at least the way I can, uh, I can recognize it. You know, the pharaohs couldn't have ruled without Isis bestowing that. That, um, uh, you know that right upon them, and here uh, she, you know, Mary Magdalene is anointing Jesus as the Christ. Uh, you know, different era, uh, you know, different religion, but sort of the same um, thing happening. You know, the uh, the guy is, gets the right to rule from the feminine. Well, certainly, um, you you always in 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 most cultures actually have. You know, the, the, the rather condescending attitude that behind every great man is a, is, is a great woman. Um, but, you know, with every great god is a great goddess. Um, and with every great priest, there is a great priestess. You know, it's a balance. Um, and certainly, if you look at, as you say, the, the role of, Osir of Isis and Osiris and, and other um, Egyptian goddesses, is the idea of, you know, leading... Um, the pharaoh or leading the god into the next next stage of initiation or the next stage of being, you know, even into the underworld. So um, basically the priestess or the goddess or the priestess who became the goddess for, for the length of the ritual um, would certainly be the one with the knowledge and the one with the power to lead the, the male archetype or just simply the man, into the next stage of, of his uh, enlightenment. So, um, so let me ask you this. I'd certainly be remiss uh, if I don't. Um, and, and granted, I know uh, we evolve over time, and the Templar Revelations was written quite a, quite a while ago. Your thinking may have changed now, maybe not. Um, do you believe uh, Jesus and Mary Magdalene were married? And I also think in the Templar Revelations, you made a good case that Jesus didn't die on the cross either. So I put those two questions to you. Um, we don't believe Mary Magdalene was married to Jesus. Um, people accept that as, as a given these days for some reason, but um, um, no, there's actually no evidence whatsoever they were legally married. There is evidence in the Gnostic Gospels, such as the Gospel of Philip, the Gospel of 
um, Mary Magdalene, the Gospel of Thomas, um, that were basically lost for most of the history of Christianity and then surfaced again in mid-20th century. Um, there's ample evidence in, in those books that they were, Mary and Jesus were in a close physical relationship and that she was his priestess and that she was his closest spiritual ally. And in fact, she, she herself was, if you like, his inner circle. Um, the, if you look at the, the New Testament, or for that matter, the Bible as a whole, you know, none of the writers of, of any of those books have any problem with uh, prophets being married. Um, they might not say much about the wives, but they don't really, you know, it's, it, had Mary Magdalene been married to Jesus, they would have described her as Mary, the wife of the Saviour. But instead, there's a very curious thing that is done with her name in the New Testament. Whereas every other woman in the, in the New Testament is described and defined by her relationship with a man. So-and-so wife of so-and-so, so-and-so sister of so-and-so. Mary Magdalene, Mary Magdalene is simply Mary Magdalene, um, which is very bizarre. And there's no real um, answer to that. Um, but uh, she was obviously an incredibly powerful woman, incredibly famous, um, and they were in a very close relationship. Now, it may have been the case, and I know a lot of people will be shocked even to consider this, but one has to consider it, may have been the case that Jesus was married to someone else. And in fact, in a sense, he must have been, because all Jewish boys, certainly before the age of 20, literally had to be married. There was no exception they had to get married so he must have been married by the age of 20 to somebody and that somebody was clearly not mary magdalene but um that wife may have died um it, uh, something that you know more shocking to consider he may simply have left her and take that with mary magdalene and you do read in the um in the gnostic gospels how the male disciples found her very distasteful they found her in a way shocking they found uh, Jesus's very open um, examples, of, uh, uh, demonstrations of love for her. He was always kissing her, and they found that very distasteful. And he, he also gave her a voice, you know. He let her speak. She was on her feet, talking and talking, you know, and she was brilliant, and he loved her. And you get the impression, actually, he was totally besotted with her. But she was almost certainly in some kind of illicit relationship with him which is why one of the reasons, certainly, that the men found their relationship distasteful and found her, in particular, distasteful. Um, as for Jesus not dying on the cross, actually, we, we didn't really go into that. Um, we don't really know what the... I mean, the, the, there are um, several heretical groups who believe that Jesus had not died on the cross, um, but there's not much hard evidence for that. So I'll just leave that there. Okay. All right. Uh, fair enough. Well, let's, um, let's move things into more contemporary times. Um, uh, liberal synagogues out there, you know, they're being presided over by female rabbis. Uh, there's a growing number of women priests and churches. Uh, I know I've interviewed a lot of women myself who uh, or, uh, definitely see the Shekinah as uh, the Jewish goddess. Um, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, you know, do you think that's enough uh, to restore balance? Um, you know, what would you like to see happen, you know, as a result of some of these changes or revelations? Well, you know, from the outside, it looks like a brilliant thing happening both in synagogues and in churches that there are women. And certainly I know the Church of England would just implode if the female uh, priests were taken out of the equation. Um, but personally, I actually look at it in a different way um, because everybody thinks that that's progress and that's a new thing and it's a kind of modern take on an old patriarchal religion. But in fact, what I'd like to see is a recognition that, in fact, this is merely a return to the way it was. And actually, there is evidence from Rome, from the catacombs in Rome, that um, not only were there originally women priests, but there were women bishops. Um, there's actually a, a depiction of one of them called Theodora. 
um, in the in the Roman catacombs. Um, and you know, it, it it is a major thing that needs to be faced up to, needs to be recognised, and for and it would be an amazing empowerment for the women already in place and it, as uh, rabbis and as priests. But also, it would actually really change everything if there was a recognition that this is not new; this is a return to the way it was, and and you know, and in fact, that all those years ago, the women then. The priestesses then had more power than they do now. So really, we can learn from the past. This is not progress. This is, this is a, a kind of tepid return to something. But they need to recognize what it is. Right. Well, I, I think that's actually a really good point, Lynn, because, uh, it, you know, it, it's not like uh, it, it would be this, this pro- progressive move, you know, and so many people are afraid of progress. It is really just a returning to the way uh, it used to be. I mean, we, um, you know, we have a former president, Jimmy Carter, uh, you know, came out against his church saying, you know, basically that this was, you know, willful discrimination uh, against women and, um, and and we all know psychologically the idea uh, that so many people um, are brought up with that um, uh, you know men are in God's image uh, you know it, I mean that that distortion comes in that uh, so it's men that are in the image of God and men are on a higher level than women and you know, it results in, uh, you know, women, species on the planet and the earth, all in service to man and God. And and you're right. I mean, just, uh, you know, to restore things to the way they had once been would shift all of that, um, you know, psychologically, monetarily, politically, socially. Uh, then there wouldn't be this... Um, uh, you know this this license that's given within church, uh, uh, you know, or, or religions to, uh, you know, elevate uh, men over women, and uh, I mean that would just totally uh, change everything. I mean uh, there would be so many people gobsmacked out there, uh, but uh, uh, for all the good it would do, um, I, I mean it, that would be an amazing shift. Well, I think for us, as we write in the book, I completely agree with, with everything you've just said. Um, um, and, you know, the desperate need to, to, to recognize, um, you know, the sacred feminine, the role that the female has in divinity. Um, but the remarkable thing for us is, going back to Simon Magus, how 2,000 years ago, he actually managed to... To, to play. He wrote a book called The Great Revelation that set out his ideas. We, we don't have all of that book left. We only have the bits that were quoted by the early church fathers. Um, they quoted it in order to condemn it, but nevertheless, that's why we've still got it. And when you read it, it's extraordinarily modern for, for our age, because essentially what Simon Magus is saying, you know, Lynn spoke earlier about... Um, uh, Helen, his companion, being, um, at least so he said, uh, a, a prostitute that he had found in a seaport and that he had purchased her freedom. And Simon Magus made her into a metaphor for what had happened to the sacred feminine in his religion, in the Judaic religion, when they reformed it. Because what they actually did, they didn't just rewrite the history to pretend that God had never had a wife. They actually denigrated the, uh, and that she had had a, her own uh, priesthood, which was made up of male and female priests. But they began to talk about these priestesses as prostitutes, as adulteresses, and using all this kind of uh, language of denigration against them. And what Simon Magus did to reverse that was to say, okay, this one was a prostitute, but she is now your symbol for the sacred feminine worship her. And he essentially said salvation for certainly the people of his religion, but he probably meant for everybody. Salvation um, depends on you recognizing the importance of the feminine. And you actually think about that in today's terms. What an um, incredible message that is. Um, 
and how relevant it still is that actually the that the future for all of us does depend on so if you like our salvation it does depend on us recognizing both the, the, the feminine in divinity and the importance the equality and everything of um of, of women today just in our everyday lives so yes simon and maybe just two thousand years ahead of us there. yeah <laughs> Well, that's that's pretty profound. Um, I, I I love uh, I, I love that concept. Uh, wow. Well, I can see why um, you know he was such an important uh, factor in your book, and I guess you know imagine uh, that could also do away with the unnatural um, you know idea of elevating celibacy. It would do away with taboos on sexuality. I mean, it would change so many things. Well, um, Lynn, Clive, um, it's been fun, um, but I want to give you the last word here. I know I've asked you a lot of questions, and uh, uh, we're almost out of time, but I'd like to leave you with the last word. Uh, is there anything I haven't asked that you feel is important, or do we want to leave it on, uh, you know, the um, – you know, on Simon Magnus and his, uh, you know, his outlook that uh, in order to be redeemed, you must embrace the feminine. Well, I think certainly that's a very important thing. But as we saying slightly earlier, the the future of the great religions, Christianity and Judaism, actually relies in them coming to terms with searing honesty with their past. Well said, well said, because there's an awful lot that uh, that's out there that uh, I think the average person doesn't know about. We have these sanitized, uh, you know, um, versions of history and... Uh, yeah, I mean, I could go on and on, but that's a whole other show. <laughs> um, well, um, well, thank you both. Uh, thank you both for being on the show. Uh, and um, I uh, h- highly recommend all of your books, uh, Lynn and Clive. Uh, today we have been talking about uh, When God Had a Wife, The Fall and Rise of the Sacred Feminine and the Judeo-Christian Tradition. But uh, definitely uh, folks need to have your Templar revelations, uh, the the uh, Turin Shroud and the Masks of Christ. Um, thank you very much uh, for both uh, being on the show tonight. Uh, it's it's been awesome, and I wish you well with the new book. Thank you very much, Karen. It's been brilliant. Yeah, thank you. It's been a been a real pleasure. Okay. Good night, and um, uh, and Happy New Year to you both. Oh, Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year. Happy New Decade. Oh yeah. Okay. Bye bye. <laughs> Oh, good point. Yes, happy new decade. That has to be our new, uh, our, our new uh, greeting. Uh, well, listeners, I hope you enjoyed that show. Uh, and I, and really, I do incredibly, uh, you know, they do incredible work, and I highly recommend their books. Uh, very interesting stuff. And I regret I forgot to ask them about uh, their involvement with the Da Vinci Code. Uh, oh well. Um, I I did say at the top of the show, uh, one of my listeners sent in uh, the only New Year's resolution uh, she ever makes, and uh, I thought it might be nice to share that with you, Uh, and uh, and it goes like this. Uh, A New Year means New Year's resolutions for many people. Well, I want to share with you the only New Year's resolution I ever make. This one New Year's resolution is all-encompassing. It will take care of all your other resolutions in one go, whether that's to find love, lose weight, be healthier, make more money, or whatever it is you want for the coming year. And it is be positive. Make a promise to yourself to be as positive as you can possibly be. Make a promise to yourself to be more positive than you've ever been in your life. At the beginning of each day, promise yourself, quote, today, wherever I go and whatever I'm doing, I will be positive, unquote. Being positive means that you will look for the positive things in people, circumstances, and all things. Being positive means that if any negative words come out of your mouth, you will stop mid-sentence and immediately turn the sentence into a positive one. Being positive means that you will have fewer negative emotions, and even if a negative emotion arises, you will be positive about it by allowing the negative emotion to be rather 
by, oh, I'm sorry, let me rephrase that. Let me start all over. Being positive means that you will have fewer negative emotions. And even if a negative emotion arises, you will be positive about it too by allowing the negative emotion to be rather than trying to push it away. Being positive means you will automatically focus on what you want, not on what you don't want. Being positive means that you will become an attractive force for what you want. Being positive means that negative thoughts and words will begin to fall away. Being positive means you will begin to feel happier and happier each day. Being positive means you will have fewer problems. Being positive means that life will go smoothly for you every day. Events will fall into place and things will go your way. Being positive means that you will feel good. Make a commitment to change your entire life in 2020 through the simple, singular act of being positive. Wishing you a happy, positive new year for 2020. And that was by Rhonda Byrne. Thank you, Rhonda. I want to thank you for tuning in. Uh, And then just a reminder, our show has changed to Wednesdays at 11 a.m. Uh, I have shared with you some of the great guests we have scheduled um, uh, through the next few months, and I think uh, you will definitely want to um, not miss any of these interviews, and you can do that by going to my show page, uh, clicking on the follow button, and that way you will get a reminder in your email inbox of uh, each show each week. And as I promised at the top of the hour, uh, I would let you hear that full cut of Diva Haley's Narayana. So here it goes. Good night. Ancient Mom.